It's good to be with you this morning. Before we get started today, we want to uh, say a prayer for uh, one of the congregations here in this town. This is something that's become a tradition of ours that we love to do because it reminds us that the size of God's kingdom is bigger than this place. And so uh, I got a chance to meet uh, Jeff Tallarico from Transformation Church. Uh, and a uh, good guy and got to spend a little time talking to him. And so I would like to lift uh, Transformation Church up today. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are gathered here today, Lord. And we know uh, that in a room this size with this many people in here that people come um, in many different ways today. There are some that are brokenhearted and walk in these doors. Uh, and they're looking for comfort from you, Lord. They're looking for uh, a reminder that you're there, that you love them, that your love endures forever, that you will never abandon, nor will you forsake them. And so, Lord, we ask uh, that you would send your Holy Spirit to guide them in that way and let them see your presence. Lord, we know that there are those that come in today who are suffering uh, through difficult illnesses. There are those that have gotten bad news from the doctor. There are those that have uh, are struggling with depression, uh, that are struggling with uh, just, just loss. And so, Lord, we ask that you would comfort them. Lord, we know that there are also those who walk in these doors after having a great week where they've been able to rejoice and they've been able to celebrate. There have been wonderful things that have happened. They've seen you in a new way. And so, Lord, we ask that we have the opportunity to lift you up uh, and to praise you during that time. But no matter what, God, we bring to you what we have, whether it's hearts that are filled with joy or broken hearts. We give those to you. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the, uh, for the massive, massive uh, spread of your kingdom. Lord, we thank you that there are people all over the world right now that are claiming the same thing we are and that, that you are Lord and that Jesus uh, saved us. And so, Lord, we ask that you would bless all of those that do that. And in particular, in this town, Lord, we ask for blessings for Transformation Church. We ask that you would guide them, that you would fill them with your Holy Spirit, that the word of, of God would be preached through them, that the uh, gospel would be shared, that you would use them in great ways to bring people who don't know you. Uh, into your kingdom. Be with Jeff this morning as he brings words of truth. Uh, we ask that you would give him the gift of preaching uh, and that uh, you would take his words and you would translate those uh, into what people need to hear and into the truth through your Holy Spirit. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray all of this. Amen. Amen. So we are in the book of John. If you haven't been with us, we are in the book of John, and uh, we have your journals. I hope that you have those today. I've got mine right here, but I uh, hope that you'll get opportunity maybe to take a few notes today. Uh, we want to be able to uh, look through this, and we're trying to look at it at a, in a different way. So uh, one of the things is we want to make sure that we've got some context with this, and so I'll just give a little review and a little reminder. You know, John, uh, from, from all accounts, it seems like through scholarship that what you have is you have uh, quite a bit of an older man who's finally uh, deciding that what he wants to do is he wants to put down his experiences with Jesus. And so this is in reflection. This is not a young man who's writing a diary as he follows Jesus along and says, today we did this and today we did that. Instead, what you have is someone who walked with the Lord for a long time, and then after he walked with the Lord, after he saw the cross, after he saw the empty tomb, after he saw uh, Jesus' ascension, and then spent years and years walking around as being one of the witnesses who told story after story. You know, I can only imagine that wherever he went, people would go, were you there when he fed 5,000? He'd go, yeah, I was there. I saw that. This is what it was like. You go, were you there when Lazarus was raised from the dead? And he goes, oh, I was there for that. Let me tell you what that was like. And after telling story after story, 
an after story because most of history that was shared during that time would have been oral tradition. And so he shared that with, with them for years and years and years. And then finally, he got to a point where he goes, I'm going to write all of this down. And the way that I'm going to write it down is not so much a list of what happened in order of the way that it happened, but I want to tell you what it meant. Here's what it meant. In great reflection, here are the things that mattered. Here's what I saw that Jesus was doing. And so you'll see that John's a little different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke and some of the orders that he puts things, and that's because he's not trying to give you a, a chronological order of things. He's trying to show you what it meant and what mattered. And today in particular, we're going to continue on with something that helps us uh, see exactly what John was trying to show us. But, they, you know, that's a common thing, the idea of as we get a little older, we start realizing some things of what really matters. Uh, as, as a matter of fact, now that I'm 15 years old, one of the things that I've started to learn is that some of the things that I thought growing up were one way I've learned to be different, and I'm hoping that that continues with me and I have more wisdom as I continue. But one, one of the things I did was I went online and I looked up... Uh, Old man wisdom. I just typed that in. Old man wisdom. Because you got John, who's an old man, who's trying to give some wisdom. And it's just interesting to see what popped up. There's all kinds of things. Some of them, you know, are really kind of helpful. Uh, you know, there were some things that came up. One of them was always carry a pocket knife. You know, there's, there's some good wisdom. You always carry a pocket knife. And one of the things that it said was, odds are when you're in a room, the oldest man in the room has a pocket knife on him. That's where you go. Now, we're not going to test that in here. But I have a feeling that that one's pretty true. The oldest man in the room has a pocket knife. Here's another good one that came up. Don't buy a boat. Get a friend with a boat. That's some wisdom right there. Because then you don't have to keep the upkeep of the boat. You don't have to take care of the boat. Somebody else does that, and you get to go out on the boat. Now, I would mention, for those of y'all that do own a boat, this is not criticism. We need you so that you can be our friends who have a boat. So this is not condemnation in any way. We're thankful for you. And then I had things like give a firm handshake, look people in the eye, set aside some money. You know, you look at all of that, and th those are good little tidbits of information. But all of those are things that you can kind of see. All of these are things that in some way that you can measure and that you can look at. And really, at the end of the day, and at the end of your life, these are not the things that will give you great peace. These are not the things that will save you. These are not the things that will make you a person who has no fear who has peace in their life, there's more to it than that. And you feel like if all we do is look at the things that you can count and the things that you can see and the things that you can measure, then we're going to miss out on something. There's going to be something that we're not going to see. And so today what we've got is uh, John sharing with us another story that will help us look a little bit deeper. So I'm going to ask uh, Andrew Bolton, if you would, come up here and read our scripture for today, uh, and uh, we'll go from there. John three twenty five through 36. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourself bear... Bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one, who the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. 
He who is of, of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things to his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Thank you, Andrew. Appreciate that. All right. Uh, I want you to know, I've, uh, I had a couple people come up and go, man, we're seeing some things in John that we've never seen before. I want you to know, I'm seeing some things in John I've never seen before. There's something, there's some, something that's going on when you dig into this and we start looking at really the inspired word of God, and it's supposed to be that way. This is the sort of thing that should change us in some way. We should look at this. We should open up our hearts, and we should be at a place to go, wow, I haven't thought about things in this way. And God's trying to grow me in this, and he's trying to take me out of maybe what I always thought and the places that I placed uh, my security and who I was. And instead, he's opening uh, my eyes up to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to continue with that today. So uh, this story in particular... Uh, has to do with John the Baptist. He's baptizing, his disciples are baptizing, and then you have Jesus and his disciples are baptizing. And what happens is you have John the Baptist's disciples coming to him and going, hey, have you noticed they're over here baptizing and everybody's leaving, man. Everybody. He says all are going over to him. So you have this spot where something is uh, really kind of a, a, a threat, if you were to think of it that way, into the really heart of what John the Baptist is doing, this idea that, hey, your influence is going away. You're losing fame. You're losing a crowd. You're losing your church. The people that have come to see you, and you need to know there were multitudes that would come out to see John the Baptist. He was preaching the truth. He was doing what God had asked him to do, and now he's at this spot where he's realizing, hey, they're all leaving. Everybody's going, man. They're all going away. Where you had a crowd, now you don't have a crowd. Where you used to have disciples, your disciples are leaving. As a matter of fact, we talked about this story earlier in John, where John pointed him out and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And some of his disciples right then just left. They took off. You got fewer disciples than you used to have. You got less influence than you used to have. You have less fame than you used to have. You were once a lead character in what was going on in this world, and now you got a supporting role. Not only do you have a supporting role, but your role is diminishing as it goes. You're getting relegated to retirement, where you were able to see the difference you made because you could look and see who came. And I imagine if you were John the Baptist, you were able to see, I'm out here, and I'm trying to tell the truth, and I'm trying to preach the truth, and I'm trying to do what God asked me, and it's working. Why? Because people are coming. Because I want you to know sometimes that's a lie that we tell ourselves. It's because if people come, then I must be doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And now I'm at this spot where they're going away. And I imagine that that can go right to the heart of the job that you're doing and whether or not it's valuable, whether or not you have any significance and when you have your own disciples come and go, hey, man, whatever you're doing, it's making everybody go. That can lead to a very difficult spot. And then what you have is John who immediately says and, and goes to this metaphor that has to do with, with bride and bridegroom. The first thing he does is he reiterates what we had heard John the Baptist say earlier. I said it before, and you were witnesses, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the one that you've been waiting for. Remember, we had this back in chapter 1. 
John the Baptist said that. He's bringing it back up again. I want to remind you I'm not the Christ. Not only am I not the Christ, I'm not the groom. I'm not the groom. There's a groom and there's a bride, and the bride belongs to the groom, and I am not that guy. Now, if I can, I want to stop for a minute because you need to know this idea and this talk of groom and bride, this would have perked the ears up of the Jews again when they hear this. The apostle John, who is writing this, and John the Baptist, don't forget we're going to go back and forth. I'll try not to mess that up. But the apostle John who wrote this is using language and making sure that he sees and people see that when John the Baptist mentioned groom and bride, that was something that Jewish people would understand because you need to understand the whole idea of God and his people has this marital language, this covenant marital language all over it. The, the covenant that God made with Abraham from the beginning, he uses all kinds of language that has to do with the marriage covenant. And then when Moses led the, the Israelites out of Egypt and he took them to Mount Sinai and he gave them these Ten Commandments and the way that he talked, it had language of marriage all over it. So this is something Jewish people would have understood. They would have said, I'm familiar with this. I get what he's talking about here. As a matter of fact, if you want to look in Jeremiah 31, and you can write this in the notes besides there if you want to so that you can go look it up later. But Jeremiah 31, 31, and 32 this is what the prophet Jeremiah says that the Lord says. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. They will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is common language. As a matter of fact, you might recognize and remember that oftentimes when God would call his people to repent, some of the ways that he'd refer to them had to do with you being a bride that's unfaithful. So this is common language, and it's one of my favorite metaphors. It's one of my favorite picture stories that, that God tells and that Jesus uses throughout his teaching. And we'll spend more time on that at a later date. But this idea of going, there's a groom and there's a bride, and I love that because if you've seen some weddings, and you've been around some people. Uh, you know, one of my favorite things in doing weddings is, is I'm usually up at the front next to the groom. And when the doors open at the back and everybody's face turns towards the bride, I'm standing next to the groom. And I get to see what he does. And I get to see the way he reacts. And so when you have Jesus going, that's the way I look at you, all of you together, my bride, the one that I want to be wed to. I remember doing one years ago, and it was with a Marine, and there was this, this young man who had been a Marine, and he's standing up there next to me, and he's got his dress uniform on. I mean, he looks sharp. There's that, 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 that Marine uniform, dress uniform is really cool looking. And he's standing up there, and he's standing at attention, and there's like nothing that can shake him until the doors open, and he saw her. And then I literally heard a guy catch his breath. I heard a, like that, and I'm like, oh, man, Right? There's something about that. There's the one I've been waiting for. There's the one that I've wanted. And finally, we're going to be together in this way. And so this language that John the Baptist all of a sudden uses and says, I want you to know, I'm not the groom. I'm not the one that you're supposed to be wed to. Is loaded language that has so much involved with it. The other part of this that's a huge deal is when he goes, Jesus is the groom is another way of claiming Jesus is God. There's so many ways that he's done this. From the beginning, Jesus was there. He's the word, right? He's the light. He's all of these different things. I want you to know again, he's the groom. That is a claim that Jesus is God in the flesh. 
But you need to know that being the, the friend of the bridegroom that he claims is more than just kind of being the best man. And it's more than just being a friend. There's more to that. We, we had something. It's more than a matchmaker, right? It's more than just going, hey, I help put these people together. There's a deeper meaning in that, although that one's important, right? I know that every time our anniversary comes around, Melissa and I, there's one person I think of in addition to my wife. It's another woman, but it's okay. You need to know. It, it's, it's Melissa's roommate from when we were in college, and it's because she introduced us. And if she hadn't introduced us, I don't know what would have happened, right? I don't know how in the world we would have ended up together. I don't know uh, what would have happened to me. I know I wouldn't be the man that I am because I wouldn't have spent these years with Melissa. But I know that there's MC Jennings is the one who said, I know you and I know you and I know y'all need to be together. And so she made it happen. And I'm thankful for her all the time that she helped make that happen. But you need to know that what John the Baptist is saying is more than that. He's more than, when he says, I'm the friend of the groom, it's more than just being a matchmaker. You need to know the friend of the bridegroom had a lot of responsibility. He was basically the facilitator of the wedding. His job is to make sure that they get together. I'm going to find a way, and I'm going to make sure that you guys get together. He would help in the negotiations for what would happen with the dowry. He was the sort of person that would talk about uh, when this is going to happen. He would help with the celebration. And you need to remember during the betrothal time, which could be a long time. Do you remember this, this betrothal? We get kind of engaged, and then I am go to prepare a place for you. I'm building a house onto my, uh, a room onto my father's house. And only my father will tell me when it's time to come get you. So the, the friend of the groom would be the one who would maybe go back and forth giving messages. He would be the communication. I can imagine him going to the bride sometimes, and she goes, is he ever going to get done? He goes, man, you wouldn't believe. He's putting up two-by-fours like you wouldn't believe. I mean, he's hammering like crazy on there. He's sawing. He's doing everything. And she goes, well, would you tell him to hurry? And then he goes back, and he goes, man, she's ready. She looks beautiful. She's got her eye on you. She's ready for you to do this. And he's in there, man, just trying to get this thing thrown together as quick as he can so that the day may come when the Father says you can go get her. And then there will be this union that occurs there. The planning of the celebration and then the, the, the groom's best friend would all also be the one who's ready at a moment's notice because when it comes time to go and get your bride, he springs into action. And then his joy in seeing them get together that are supposed to be together is the thing that John the Baptist talks about. The voice of the groom coming to get his spouse and finally for them to be together. It's more than a best man, but it's the friend of the groom. And it's important that he knows it's not my wedding. It's not about me. I'm not the groom. My joy is in the groom receiving the bride. My role is to honor the groom and to celebrate the union and to lead others to the celebration, maybe to give a toast or a speech at that time. And when they get together, my job is done. And my joy is complete in the fact that the two that we're supposed to be together are together. It's an amazing response. It's an amazingly mature response response to have somebody come and go you're losing your influence and you're losing your church and I got to go it's not about me I'm not the groom this is not about my happiness this is not about my gathering this is not about the people that I put together how in the world does John the Baptist have this maturity how's he able to respond in this way how's he able to see his role well one of the things that I looked at is to go John chapter 3 is really about two different conversations that are about the same thing 
If you recall, we started a couple of weeks ago in John chapter 3 with a conversation that Jesus is having with Nicodemus. And then we spent uh, another week in the middle with John 3.16, which seems to be a continuation of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. And then you have this conversation that John the Baptist is having with his disciples. It's two conversations, but it's about the same thing. It's Jesus talking to Nicodemus and John the Baptist talking about Jesus. Now, I will tell you these later verses uh, th that we were reading today, some, of them, some people think that maybe that is John the Apostle's commentary on what John the Baptist was saying. Some people believe it was John the Baptist actually saying this. Either way, it's important that it's there. John the Apostle said, you need to know this because this is important, okay? But if you can, I want to show you something here that's really neat about these two conversations because what happens is the same thing is said over and over again. You want to know why? Because it's really important. That's what they do is they say it over and over again because it's really important. So if you want to, you can make a little bracket around John 3, 5 through 21. Make a little bracket around there. That's the conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus that we're going to be referring to. And then verses 31 through 36, that is John the Baptist or John talking about Jesus. Okay, let me show you a couple of things. We're going to scroll through this, but I want you to kind of see the things that are the same in there. So first... In verse 6, Jesus says to Nicodemus, he's talking about earthly and heavenly things. So verse 6 says, that which is born of the flesh and that which is born of the spirit. That's what he's talking about. He said, once you're born of the spirit, then things are going to change. Things that come out of you will be born of the spirit. If you're born of the flesh, then you need to know things that will come out with you will be born of the, of the flesh. Then, if you jump down to 31, John the Baptist says to Jesus, he who comes from above is above all. He is of the earth, belongs to the earth. And speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. It's basically the same thing. It's saying if you're coming from above, it's going to change what comes out of you. If you're coming from the earth, then you're going to have earthly things that are coming out of you. Verse 11, Jesus says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, we bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Jump down to verse 32. John the Baptist says about Jesus, he bears witness to what he's seen and he's heard. And no one receives his testimony. It's the same thing. Jump down to verse 16. Jesus says to Nicodemus, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Then if you jump down to verse 36, this is what John the Baptist says about Jesus. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. What you have is the same sentences being said over and over in two different conversations. One of them, Jesus is trying to explain to Nicodemus who he is. The other one, you have John the Baptist trying to explain to people who Jesus is. But it's the same words, and it's the same thing. And if we could pull a main point out of there, one of the things you're going to see is that if you're born of the Spirit like Jesus, then you will bear witness like Jesus, and you will believe in Jesus. That's what all of those are. It's the same thing. Over and over. It's a new way of looking at God. It's a new way of living for God. And it's a new way of loving God. And they're trying to explain that. The interesting thing is you have Nicodemus who's trying to get it. And man, I have a, I have a heart for Nicodemus. Because you can feel he's trying to get it. And then you have John the Baptist who gets it. That's what's going on. One who's trying to get it and one who gets it. And in both cases, they're dealing with the fact that I'm going to lose something. I'm going to lose something in this. It's very true. You have two different reactions to giving something up. 
In both cases, what you have is two people that are dealing with the idea that their identity may have been in what they've done. And from that, they are going to lose that th those things. Nicodemus would have been, what I have done makes me right. you got to remember, Nicodemus, he was a Pharisee. He was part of the Sanhedrin. He was used to doing things right. If anybody obeyed, he's the guy that obeyed. He got it right. And now he's coming and he's talking to Jesus. And Jesus goes, listen, here's the deal, man. you got to be reborn. You're going to have to start over with a new faith. And then you have John the Baptist who has to deal with the idea or the lie that he may have of what I've done makes me loved because this crowd gathered. And now this crowd's going away. Nicodemus loses the assurance of doing right when he meets Jesus. One of the things that he comes to and Jesus gets him to understand is that it's not about you following the formula. It's not about you getting things right. It's not what you've done or what you will do. It's not the way you follow. It's not the way you obey. It's not the formula you have. It's not the effort and the devotion you put into doing right. Jesus says you will have to be reborn and you'll have to be like a child and learn to trust me and rely on me. And Nicodemus' response to that is a guy who's trying to figure it out and goes, how can these things be? It's a hard thing when you're confronted with God and he goes, I know you've been relying on being right. And you may have to come to grips with the fact that you haven't always been right. I got bad news for you. It's not about you being right. I never asked you to always be right. And you need to know that there is grace in that. But there is also something that you're going to have to lose. You're going to have to lose your reliance on what you've done. John, on the other hand, is losing popularity, influence, significance. If he had that feeling of I am what other people say I am, my fans, my likes, the people who say I'm doing a good job, the people who say I'm doing a bad job, what my parents, my friends, or the crowd say about me, you're going to have to turn loose of that. You're going to have to let that go. Because it's not about how you gather, and it's not about the more people that think you're wonderful. And this one's really hard for us, too, because we live in a culture Boy, do we live in a culture that invites everyone to be the audience of your life. We have made new ways for people to comment and for people to respond, to give a thumbs up, to give a thumbs down, to say yay, to say nay, to say you're ridiculous, to say you're awesome, and it feeds us like a weird drug. And not only that, we can be caught up in it and feel like we need to do the same thing with others. I'll let you know your worth by what you do, and I'll let you know whether or not you've offended me or you've upset me or you're doing something that makes me uncomfortable. And you need to know we're missing something if that's where we are. We can learn to crave the responses and approval of others. Am I successful? Do I have value? Basically what that is is am I worthy of someone else's love? And in both cases, no matter what you do, if it's about what you do right or whether or not people love you, you need to know that you can spin and you can toil and you can wear yourself out on that with stress and anxiety about being enough and becoming enough and having people compliment you enough. And you need to know Jesus came to save you from all of that. Amen. Because those things will not satisfy. Both of those are going to lead to an insecurity because pride says, look at what I've done. And insecurity goes, what have I done? And you need to know you're going to hit both of those back and forth. Because look at what I've done is eventually going to turn into what have I done. 
because you won't be able to keep that up. You won't be able to point to your own actions. You won't be able to point to what you've accomplished. Nicodemus couldn't even do it. And let me tell you, he was really good at it. He was really good at obeying. He was really good at doing what he was supposed to do. He was really good at doing it in the right way. And that's when Jesus came to him and said, you need to understand something. You're going to have to be reborn. You can suffer from both of those things depending on the day because both of them are about feeding the flesh while Jesus says, I've come to save your soul, not your flesh. It's your soul. Who you are. And that is more than what you've done. Jesus says, you are not what you have done, good or bad. You are what I have done. And you are what I say you are. And that is great news. That is the gospel. That's great news. You want to know why? Because he's not going to change his mind about who you are when you have a bad day and when you mess up and when you don't do it exactly right. I'm going to say that one again. You are not what you have done, good or bad. You are what I have done, Jesus says. And you are what I say that you are. So what's the difference in them? And I'm not going to bash on Nicodemus. Like I said, man, I think he changes. I think he grows. If you go and look at what he does later in life, I think he makes these remarkable changes. I think he becomes a disciple of Jesus and he comes to believe. But in this moment in chapter 3, I think what John is trying to show us, John the author, is to go. There's these conversations that have to happen with people. And it has to be you're going to have to turn loose of what you've relied on. And you're going to have to grab onto me. And it's going to be hard. And it's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you your comfort in going, I have this comfort because I feel like I've got it figured out. And I know the rules. And I know this way it's supposed to be. And Jesus is going to go, yeah, you're going to have to turn loose of that. Or there could be this John the Baptist and what he has to turn loose is to go, hey, I've been doing this and I've been doing it for you. And everybody says it's a good job and that I'm doing wonderful and people have liked me. And now they don't seem to like me. And now they're leaving. He goes, yeah, you're going to have to turn loose of that. Either way, whether they think you're great or whether they think you're awful, you're going to have to turn loose of those things. And I think the biggest difference between John the Baptist and Nicodemus is in what you see John the Baptist say. He immediately goes to, this isn't about me. This isn't about me. I can only do with what God has given me. God is up to something bigger than me and bigger than what I do. There's more to this than what I can see or do or count. Those are things of the flesh. You can always see, and you can always count. You can always measure. And God's up to something bigger than that. The Spirit is moving in ways that I haven't seen before. Both Nicodemus and John the Baptist are having to deal with that. But in John the Baptist, he says, he's moving in ways I haven't seen before, and in unexpected ways, and I'm good with that. Something I think we can really learn how am I going to deal with being called to something deeper than just my religion and the things that I do? Some things that I may not be comfortable with. Is it going to shake me to my core like it did Nicodemus where he goes, how can these things possibly be? It couldn't be that I missed something. It couldn't be that I focused on the wrong thing. It couldn't believe that I didn't have my priorities in order on this. Or do you end up saying, it's not about me. He must increase and I must decrease, which is what John the Baptist said. Because through that, you're able to be set free from the expectations that you've placed on yourself and on your right standing and making sure that you got it right all the time. 
That's what Paul's talking about in Philippians 3, right? So Philippians 3, Paul goes through and says, hey, listen, if you want to talk about who really knows how to obey and who's got this obeying the law and this Jewish thing down, I'm the guy. I have the resume. I've done it all right. I've worshiped in the correct way. I've used the correct words. I've done things that you're supposed to do. And then he comes to verse 7 and verse 8, and he said, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surprising worth, surpassing worth, not surprising, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. The neat thing about this with Paul is he's not throwing away the bad stuff. He's throwing away the good stuff. This is the guy going, hey, listen, if there was a fantasy draft for Jews obeying the law, I'm the number one pick. Okay, You would all pick me first. I'm going to get the most points for you. I'm the guy. I'm the one you want. I have done the right things. And I take these things that I've done right and correct and I've learned I cannot rely on them. I have to go to things of the Spirit. If I look at these, I'm missing what God's doing. There's more than this. And so what I've done is I've taken these good things and I've cast them aside and go, those are garbage in comparison to knowing Christ and relying on Him. That's a man who's been reborn from above, who sees things of the Spirit and not just things of the flesh. God is up to something bigger than just what we do and how I do it. When you're born from up above, you see things in a different way. When you've been reborn spiritually, you will see things from a spiritual way. Let me tell you what happens when we miss that. I, I just got a story from, from a while back. There's this how we see things in the flesh and how we see things from the spirit and the damage that can be done when we don't see things from a spiritual nature, okay? So I, I've got this friend that is around my age, and he was away from the church for a long, long time. And I finally asked him, what, what's the deal, man? Because I knew he believed in God, but he didn't practice in any way. And he finally told me, he said, well, here's the deal. He said, my father was a devoted man of God, and he was somebody who loved the Lord with all of his heart. And he was somebody who always wanted to be at church when the doors were open, and he wanted to be there, and he wanted to worship. And he ran a gas station in a small town. And this was back when there were service stations, not just gas stations, but service stations. You kids, that a service station was when they would come out, pump the gas for you, and they check your oil, and they do all these other things, right? So that's what it was. And that's what he did. So on Sunday mornings, he would go, and he would open up his service station because that's where he worked. And he would work there for a while. And then when it came time for church, he would shut it down, losing money, right? And he would walk over to church. And one day he had somebody that was a leader in the church come and say, you know, those overalls that you're wearing, those coveralls have grease all over them, and you really need to come in your best for the Lord. Don't come back here looking like that. What he didn't realize was what God was up to. God was working in the life of a man who was sacrificing to come and worship. He was actually working through the life of a man to go, I'm willing to put aside these things and to set them over here so that I can come and worship the Lord. And instead, what you had was somebody who had locked on to, this is the way it looks to worship. By the way, that you're supposed to wear your best, that's nowhere in the Bible. Nowhere. It's just not in there. And then you had somebody coming and going, from what I can see and the way that I look and the things that I can count, you're not supposed to be here. 
And what they couldn't see was from a spiritual nature, you have someone whose heart was devoted to the Lord, and they missed it. You missed what God was doing. It's bigger than that. God's at work in those things, and when we hold on to the way that you have to do it or what it's supposed to look like or what it's supposed to be and what it's supposed to sound like, then you miss that God is doing something bigger than what you're doing. That was John the Baptist. God's up to something here. You're going to lose your crowd. God's up to something here. You're not going to have the influence you had. God's up to something here. He's doing something I can't see. He's doing something that's more than just what you can see. And you have somebody with great faith seeing what God is doing in there. The best part is that John the Baptist talks about my joy being complete. That my joy is complete in the finished work of Christ. It's when Christ gets his bride. That's when my joy is complete. And what's wonderful about that is that it's not in my finished work. It's in the finished work of Christ. Because if my joy is only going to be complete in my finished work, I'm in trouble. I'm never finished. I'm never going to get done. It's never going to look right. It's never going to be perfect. But if my joy is complete in the finished work of Christ, then I can rest. And I can actually be joyful knowing that it won't change. Looking at things through the flesh, you miss something. Looking at things through the Spirit, you start to see what God's up to. Let me give you another example, and we'll share in this one together. This right here. If you have this with you, you can get it out right now. We're going to talk about it just for a second. If you want to look at this and what we're remembering just from the flesh, you're going to miss something. You're going to miss something. If you just look at this as the idea of going, well, Jesus died, and this is where we are, you're going to miss something. Okay? We start learning through Christ to see things through the Spirit so that we can understand exactly what Christ did. If you start thinking of his disciples, John the Apostle, some of the others that were with him, if they were just looking through the flesh, when Jesus got crucified, what they saw was the crowd's gone. Everybody left. Jesus, who was supposed to save everybody, is now arrested. He's now up on a cross. We lost the crowd. He lost his own followers. He lost his disciples. Evil and power has triumphed. They've overcome the goodness of Jesus, and now death has won. If you just look and you count score through things of the flesh, that's what you see. But if you look through the Spirit, then you see God's up to something bigger than that. You see that what this is, is this is actually complete power in Christ being laid down for the sake of those that he loves. What you see is we're being saved through the Spirit by the sacrifice of the flesh. You see the score doesn't look the way that you thought it would. The scoreboard's a little different because resurrection will come. Death will be overcome. And so with us, what we want to do is we want to be looking at this through the eyes of the Spirit, not the things of the flesh. And our temptation is to look at this and go, I don't like this cracker this way and it really needs to be passed in trays or it needs to be handed out in this way or by these people and it needs to be said in this way. And let me tell you, if you do that, you're missing the point. Things of the Spirit. Because what that does is that keeps focusing on what I do and what we do. And if we do that, we've missed it. God's up to something bigger than what you're doing. He's doing something through you and in you. And that's what we celebrate that we've been changed through what we do here.
We remember the change of the spirit. That flesh died so that spirit could live. Let's take this together. If you would bow with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what this means to us. This is a reminder that your physical body was broken. But through that, we are able to live through the Spirit, that we are able to remember that we're part of the body of Christ, that we are able to remember that it was the bread of life that came, that there are so many reminders to us of how we were saved spiritually. It's also a reminder to us that our bodies will fail and our bodies will die from this world, but we'll be given new bodies in the resurrection. We will spend eternity with you that our spirits are saved through the broken body of Jesus. Bless our time now as we take this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Let's pray over the cup. Lord God, we remember pure blood from the king, the king of the universe who came, that that blood was not tainted in any way with any sin, with any selfishness, with any desire to elevate himself, but instead he became obedient to you, to death, even death on a cross for our sake. So we are now washed in the precious pure blood of Christ. And let us never forget that. Bless us as we take this in the name of Jesus. We're going to take a moment now and we're going to pray. Uh, we're going to do this together. I would ask if you would please stand. We're going to have an opportunity to pray with each other. We're going to uh, pray with elders if you need to. Man, if you're hurting today and you need to pray with somebody, we encourage you. Find somebody to pray with. You can pray with one of us. You can go to one of the elders. You can go to somebody near you. Uh, if you've come today and you have uh, great rejoicing, pray about that. If you're hurting, pray about that. If you want to know about how to be reborn from above so that you can look at things from the Spirit and see what Christ has done for you, come talk to me. Come talk to any of us. We'd love to talk to you about what it means to obey Christ and become His. So we're going to take a few songs. We're going to pray together. We encourage you, like I said, to pray with each other by yourself. Come pray with, with one another. Uh, if you would, though, as we uh, break to do that, let's read Colossians 3, 1 through 4 together as a reminder of things of the Spirit. So let, if you would, join with me as we read this. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is in your life, appears, then you will also appear.